Today we continue in our series, and it's one that's made us both uncomfortable and better. It's titled Choosing Sides. You see, it's impossible to stay away from the topic of religion at church, but we usually stay away from politics. However, when a topic intersects with the teaching of Jesus, well, it's our responsibility to talk about it. The division among Jesus' followers created by our current political climate intersects directly with Jesus. And you know, since our church is, is large, it's diverse, it's geographically dispersed around Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, and now all around the world since we've gone online, special shout out to our friends in Ecuador, we are set up to be divided. And I became painfully aware of this over the last few years, particularly after the 2016 presidential election in America. I mean, you've seen it, right? Haven't you? You've seen it. You've gone, you've gone on Facebook. You, you, you've read the tweets. You see the headlines on the news day after day after day. Hmm. So how about that 2020 election? And you might be asking, which one, John? <laughs> how do you live life in a world where your team did win? But you know people whose team, well, they didn't win. You see, there, there's a tension there, isn't it? How do you navigate living in a state of, well, exile? Pastor Austin and Pastor Wayne took us through these conversations, and we've learned that we are ultimately citizens of heaven. And if we are truly committed to Jesus, well, we have to take his example seriously. And that means letting go of anything, anything, that prevents us from being a loving servant in the areas of our actions, our attitudes, and our motivations. You see, nothing divides in those areas like politics because nothing divides like fear. But let me ask you a question. What exactly do we fear? We're not going to spend too long on that because, well, I'm going to tell you the answer right now. It's this, it's loss. We fear loss. We have, we have this deep-seated fear that we'll, we'll lose our control, that we'll lose our opportunity, we'll lose our wealth, we'll lose our culture, our freedom, our progress. All of us fear what might happen. And here's the thing, for our black, our indigenous, and brothers and sisters of color, they fear what has already happened. For them, it's not simply theory. It's history. And that history really wasn't that long ago, was it? So we're in this cultural moment where everyone is peddling fear. And if we're not careful, we will fall victim to it. If we're not careful, we'll become divided. And here we are. Here we all are. We have the whole political spectrum in our community, in our church. And I love that. I mean, don't you love that? And can I just be honest? I really don't want to be a part of a church where we are all the same because the diversity of the church is paramount to its purpose of spreading the excellent news of Jesus. And here's the exciting prospect. Here's what's been giving me life lately. We have an unprecedented opportunity to model for our community, and well, for our country, 
what it looks like to disagree politically and love unconditionally. But here's a question for you. Do you want to do this? <laughs> do you think that you can do this? Right? Not just, not just tolerate. Not just be nice with an eye roll. But let me just be pointed and maybe ask you in a different way, which goes directly to the heart of the matter and which goes directly to what we've been talking about in the series. Are you willing to evaluate your politics through the filter of your faith? Are you? Are you willing? And, well, am I willing to evaluate our politics through the filter of our faith? Rather than create a version of faith that supports our politics. Now, another way I can ask that question is, well, are you willing to follow Jesus, <laughs> right? Are we willing to evaluate our actions, our attitudes, and our motivations and see if they reflect Jesus' actions, attitudes, and motivations? Or do they reflect a version of our faith that we have created ourselves? All right, any questions? Good, <laughs> we'll keep moving. So Jesus, you see, Jesus saw this coming. And I'm not talking about our elections, but what Jesus saw coming was division. You see, after the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus prays a prayer. And it's a prayer that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they record before Jesus' arrest. And you see, this prayer, this prayer is sometimes called the high priestly prayer. And within this prayer, there are two very interesting things. The first of which is Jesus prays for us. He prays for us. And the second is, Jesus had a prayer request. Which, I know, it's kind of odd to think that Jesus was like, hey, yeah, I have a, I have a prayer request. So anyway, in Jesus' request, in this passage recorded in John, he talks about, and it's not like the prayers that we pray, you know, thanks for this day, help me get to work on time, you know, help my kids and all of that stuff. All of that stuff is great. It's good. But what Jesus prays for, and this is so, so, so cool. Because remember, if you know the timeline of events happening here, you know that Jesus is at the end. He's about to get arrested in a few hours. He's going to be tried and he's going to be killed. But Jesus prays. And what he asks of his heavenly father has everything to do with anyone who considers themselves to be a follower of Jesus. He prays this. He says, Father, the hour has come. <laughs> like here we are. It's been a long three and a half years of walking around the Middle East with these guys. And I've been trying to explain to them what you're like, God, and what your kingdom is going to look like but I know that this is the end. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. He's saying, look, let people know who I really am so that they can see clearly who you are. They know that we're connected. And isn't it amazing that in the hour in which God was most glorified, we would have been most horrified. I would have looked away. And so in that last hour, Jesus continues in verse 11. He says, 
I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm leaving them. They're going to stay here, and I am coming your way, God. But what's next is amazing. And I think that most of us just miss this or we just don't know this because here's his prayer request. He says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that, and let's just get one thing straight here. Just so you know here, Jesus isn't talking about their physical protection, right? Because they all, they all know what's coming their way. They know that their, their physical safety is going to be compromised. But Jesus is praying for something more, way more important than that. And here's the rest of that prayer request. That they may be one as we are one. <laughs> Let that sink in. Jesus was at the end. And in the midst of of that looming reality that he would be tried and crucified. He was most concerned about his disciples' unity and their oneness. And why? Why did he care? Because Jesus knew. He knew that if they were united with each other and with their God, just like the impeccable unity between God the Father and his son Jesus, that the world would change. And then in verse 20, he does something. He prays for you. And he prays for me. He prays for us. He says this, my prayer is not for them alone. Right? This prayer isn't just for the 12 guys, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. In essence, the next generation of Christians and the next and the next leading all the way to us. And what do you think he prays for us? Because let me tell you, sure not what we pray for us. And I'd imagine that there aren't a whole lot of us that have ever asked God for what Jesus asked for. You see, maybe if the church, maybe if people like me have been asking God for this, the world might be in a different and better place. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them, and let's just pause there, all of them. In the first century, that would mean Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, slaves and free, leaders and soldiers, tax gatherers and those who paid those taxes the educated and the uneducated, everyone, all of them. And in our 21st century context, it means conservatives and liberals, the privileged and the not so privileged, our black, brown, indigenous brothers and sisters, and our white brothers and sisters, married or single, all of us. Jesus prays that all of them, all of us, and here's the thing, may be one. For us, you see, that seems, well, impossible. But Jesus was convinced that it was mission critical. It was absolutely imperative. 
And let's not let this pass by so quickly because this wasn't simply an add-on. It wasn't just tacked on. It was very intentional. Jesus is saying that, look, my church is going to be so wonderfully diverse, so international. It's going to have so many different languages and, and colors and cultures. And Jesus was convinced that in spite of our tendency to separate by class and by division, that we could remain one. And it doesn't come naturally, does it? And I think that's why he prayed for it. Because he continues in John 17, verse 21, he says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that, and let's just pause there for another moment, before we continue, do you know why he asked for oneness? So we would get along? No, it's not it. It actually doesn't have anything to do with us. He says that the reason I want them to be one is so that the world, the world, not the people in the church, but the people outside the church, the people that don't believe what we believe, the people that drive by and they roll their eyes, when they see our unity in spite of our diversity, they may actually come to the conclusion, they might be convinced, they may believe that you, that's God, have sent me. My brothers and sisters, that is what is at stake. Remember, this isn't just a tack on. This is mission critical. We can witness to the world what it looks like to have beautiful, extraordinary diversity here in our local church and that we can work together. We can be unified even though we disagree. We can witness to what a beautiful, a magical, an unusual unity looks like in a world that is yearning and groaning because it's been divided for so, so, so long. And can I just say that? We have the responsibility for our children to get this right. The faith of the next generation is worth everything. And it has broken my heart to see a young generation grow up in these last years seeing grown adults treat each other viciously. And can I say so contrary, so, so far out from the attitudes, the actions, and motivations of Jesus. What you say, what you do, and yes, what you tweet tells our next generation what it means to be an adult and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if we get that wrong, when we get that wrong, because we're going to get it wrong, the effects are enormous. Our misaligned actions, attitudes, and motivations have disastrous consequences. So we got to take this so, so seriously. This right here, this is the way forward. This is what will we'll get the attention, just like the Apostle Paul mentions of the Roman Empire. This is what will get the attention of our 21st century empires. And I can't help but be overcome with emotion when I imagine myself, you know, <laughs> sitting at that table with Jesus and his disciples around. And Jesus knew the end was coming. But through that, 
through that hour in which we would have been most horrified, I would have been most horrified. Jesus nudges us towards a new command during that Passover meal. Jesus said, look guys, I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm about to leave. Peter, shh. No, you can't come. I'm leaving. And here's one thing I don't want you to forget. Here's the one commandment that's going to replace all other commands. Here's the thing. It is so simple. And the thing is, you don't even need to write this down. A new command I give you. Love one another. And you might be thinking, well, that's not really new. And actually, you're, you're right. There are similar commands in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but here's where things are different. And this, this is revolutionary. You're to love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. You see, love for others was commanded in the Old Testament, but the love that Jesus commanded was new. It was radical. It was revolutionary because it called his followers not merely to love, but to love sacrificially, just as Jesus loved them. And let's get this straight. This, was, this wasn't a suggestion. This wasn't just your tip of the week. Jesus didn't just commend it. He didn't just counsel it, but he commanded it. And he made it one of the fundamental laws of his kingdom. This was a new command. And again, remember like before, this is not about us. Okay, let's remember that. It's not about us. It's about his mission through us. Because Jesus says in the next part of that, by this, all men, all men will know that you are my disciples. All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Big emphasis on the if. Because you see, mutual love is the badge of Jesus' followers. <laughs> this is the uniform that his family wear. Jesus is saying, look, look, I want you to be noted for this quality. Jesus wants, us, Jesus wants us to do this. He wants us to surpass all others in your love for one another. Could you imagine if we competed against each other and our love for each other? <laughs> Jesus was famous for this. And it's the truest honor of Jesus' disciples to excel, to surpass in mutual love. You see, Christians were known by their affection for one another. And yes, even their enemies took notice. You see, that's how we change the world. That is how we change the world. Back to John 17, Jesus continues with his prayer. And he says this in John 17. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. And there it is again. <laughs> I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. My friends, don't get this twisted. He's not talking about political unity, but unity of purpose. Unity where we can see each other the way that Jesus sees each and every one of us. This is a new worldview. It includes a God that loves them and a savior that dies for them. And it would be so profound, it would so encapsulating that it would define and redefine everything for them. Here it is again. He continues. 
then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When we're unified, the world changes. And friends, it did. Because you see, after Jesus died and he rose again, it happened. The apostles went into the streets of Jerusalem. They went to different regions. They went to different parts of the world. And they went with one purpose, the purpose to make disciples of all nations. And they went with one message, that Jesus is king, the one that came to bring the kingdom of God to earth, the king that laid down his life for this world so that we could have an on-ramp to God the Father. And then they, the disciples, went out with one singular command, to love each other the way they had seen Jesus love them. So look, I think Andy Stanley said it best in this way. He says, your political candidate will win or lose based on how your city, how your province, how your country votes. But here's the thing, here's the important thing. The church will win or lose based on how we love each other. The church. And I'm not talking about a physical building, but the global church will win or lose based on how we treat each other and how we love each other. It was Christianity, these upside-down ideas of Jesus that shaped Western civilization. And like Pastor Wayne told us last week, you see, we're not a Christian nation, but we've been shaped by the message of Christianity. <laughs> That's undeniable. Even staunch atheists believe that. It wasn't a liberal, it wasn't a conservative, it wasn't a Democrat, it wasn't a Republican. No, it was a teaching of Jesus. Radically different. The upside down, heaven on earth narrative that Jesus brought. You see, political parties, their leaders, their ideology, heck, even our own political leanings, they will ebb and they will flow. They will come and they will go. They are temporary, and they will change. It all passes. So why on earth would we allow political view to divide us from actual, living, breathing people that Jesus died for? The people beside you, your neighbor, the ones that work in the office next over, or the people that are related to you. Why? Why would we allow fear to have that grip on us? Why instead? Why instead wouldn't we fight for? Why wouldn't we struggle for and sacrifice for the unity that Jesus, our King, prayed for? The unity of the church got the attention of a divided world 2,000 years ago. And here's the thing, we can do it again. So I asked you a question earlier. Do you want to do this? Do you? I believe this is what God is calling us to in this time. Well, at all times, but especially now. So I want to leave you with two things that we need to do. Disagree politically. Go ahead, disagree politically. But look for an opportunity to love that person unconditionally. I'm not asking you to believe what they believe. 
go ahead, disagree politically, but love unconditionally. And maybe that might be more difficult for some than others. Like, do you even know someone well enough that you can disagree politically with and love them unconditionally? Or are your circles filled with people that, that talk the same as you, that look the same, that believe the same things? That's not God's church. And maybe, maybe that's, well, part of the problem. We spend so much time trying to get people onto our team that we are so closed off. We are so disenfranchised from listening to and loving them. How well do you know the people that you disagree with? Hmm. So go ahead, disagree. But don't we dare think for a moment that our disagreement with someone disqualifies them from receiving our unconditional love. That is not living in the third way of Jesus. And then there's another thing that we need to do. And remember, if you're thinking these are just nice things to do, you know, John, we'll see how I feel. These are non-negotiables if we're followers of Jesus. This is not optional. Pray for unity. We need to. It's what Jesus prayed for. It was the prayer of our Savior who died just hours later. And it doesn't need to be long or complicated. It can be simple as this. It can be as simple as this. God, make us one so we can influence many. Would you pray that prayer? Would you pray that prayer every day? The days where you watch the news or, or you see the tweets and it's frustrating. But would you take a moment to pray that prayer? Now, you might be thinking through all of this. Sweet, sweet, innocent John. <laughs> this is all great and good, but it all just seems a little, well, it all just seems a little naive. And maybe that's your assessment of all of this. But let me tell you what's really naive. A first century rabbi from nowhere, surrounded by 12 guys in that blazing hot Syrian sun, they got nothing going for them. They got no political clout. And in that blazing hot sun, that first century rabbi says this. He says, guys, I'm going to build my church. And it's going to be a beautifully diverse church. And nothing will overcome it. Even the gates of hell won't overcome it. <laughs> if you imagine those 12 guys around them, they're looking around like, us? Wait, you're going to do what? And Jesus says, I'm going to start a movement. And you, you're going to be a part of it. Rome won't stop it. Uh, no culture will stop it. No nation or leader will stop it. So if you think that, well, I'm naive. No, folks, that, that is naive. But Jesus did it. And, well, we are a part of it. So go ahead, go ahead, disagree politically, but love unconditionally and pray for unity. Disagree politically, love unconditionally, and pray for unity. Can I just invite you as we, as we just end this message, would you just take a posture of prayer as we pray that simple prayer in just a moment? And would you just leave your hands open and just pray this prayer? And you can look at it on the screen here if you can't remember it and just say this, God, make us one 
so we can influence many. God, make us one so that we can influence many. Amen.